Thank you, Megan, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy New Year. Glad that we can be here together as we begin a new series in the book of Philippians. And really, the overarching theme in this book of Philippians is the theme of joy. And it always seems appropriate to study joy in Seattle in January. (laughs) Rain, dark, nobody in the playoffs. (laughs) Time for joy. Let's pray together. Father, uh, do instruct us. Uh, As we enter into a new year, we're mindful that uh, we live in a world filled with uncertainty, alienation, loss. And right in this world, and right in the midst of our own challenges, you call us to be people of hope. So our prayer, Father, is that you would shepherd us individually, as families, collectively, that the hope found in Christ would shine through our community, Father. Thank you for your amazing mercy that though we're deeply flawed and imperfect and rebellious, you are relentless in calling us back to you, in pursuing us, and in using us uh, to change the world. For this, we give you thanks. Equip us toward that end this morning. We'll thank you for the adventure that awaits, praying in the name of Christ. Amen. I meet on a regular basis with a friend. We meet several Mondays over the course of a year. And I meet with this man for several reasons. We're friends. He's also older than me, and that's, I love that. I need to have older people in my life, and he's wiser than me. He's 10 years older than me, but 30 years wiser than me is what I'd like to say. Uh, and uh, remember, we have been meeting for a while, and I said to him one time, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Because as you get older, you start thinking about that, right? What do we do with those last years? And his answer stunned me. He said, uh, I don't want to be an old fool. And I thought, well, that's a negative answer, isn't it? I mean, uh, like, you could say I want to change the world and I want to make a huge difference. But instead, he stated a negative. I don't want to be an old fool. And the sense kind of hung there. And then he looked at me, looked at me right in the eyes. He said, Richard, I met a lot of old fools. People who started well in marriage, in vocation, in faith. And now, at my age, they've tossed it all away. And, and, and it's a shipwreck. I don't want to be an old fool. And the more I think about it, the wiser that is. If I can just avoid being an old fool, I will make a difference. I will be a person of hope. It will be substantial. Because you see, there's a thing all through the Scripture and through life about starting well but not finishing well. In mountaineering, the goal is not the summit. It's a safe return back to the base camp. In sailing, the goal isn't to leave the harbor, it's to leave the harbor, go out, come back. The goal isn't to start writing a book, it's to finish. Not to start a job, to finish well. Not to start a marriage, to still be in love after 50 years. Not to have children, but to raise children. Not to start a life with God, but to be more in love with God 40 years down the road than you are today. That's the goal, right? And what's more, in the scripture, God goes to great lengths to remind us that many people start and the vast majority who do start don't finish. And the classic example of this in the scripture is the story of the Jews' deliverance out of Egypt. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he brought them out of slavery explicitly in order to bring them into the promised land. And though he brought them out in order to bring them in, he brought two million out and only two entered in. So most died in the wilderness never having entered into the life for which they were delivered out from slavery. Sir Francis Drake, the great explorer, 
articulates this a bit in a prayer. This is what he said. O Lord, when you give to your servants to endeavor any great matter, grant us also that we might know it is not the beginning of the matter, but the continuing of the same until the end, until it be thoroughly finished. This is what matters most. Isn't that awesome? Finishing. And the book of Philippians actually could be called a guide to finishing well because it's one of the last things that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's a book about joy, yes, about the importance of serving one another in community. It's a book about prayer, about generosity, about contentment, about getting along with each other. Absolutely, all those things true. But if you understand the context, the author, the backstory about Paul, his relationship to the Philippians, what you come to discover is that he's offering us this beautiful example of a roadmap whereby we might live life in such a way that there's as much passion and joy and service at the end of life as at the beginning. And he does this by showing us three qualities of life that contribute to sustainable faith. In other words, if my faith is to be strong at the end as it was at the beginning, uh, what do I need? I need A, a life, or one, a life that's adaptable, two, a life that's rooted in the end of the story, and three, a life that cultivates the right investments, a life that's adaptable, life that's rooted in the end of the story, uh, life that cultivates the right investment. We're going to look at those three things this morning as a means for being people of hope to the very end. Do you remember the story of the nation of Israel, like they're delivered out of slavery and then, and then they're, in the, they're in the wilderness, the Red Sea's just parted, and in Exodus chapter 15, everyone's dancing and singing as this grand worship service, and then, and then uh, just days later, they're like this, we hate Moses, or we hate this guy. Why are we here? We hate the desert. We hate the, we hate the food. We hate the water. We hate Moses' wife. We hate Aaron. We hate Aaron's wife. We hate the rain. We hate January. We hate Amazon. We hate everything, <laughs> right? Like we started well, and now what? So how, like this is the point of the book, life that's adaptable. That's where it starts. And the reason it starts there is because of the context. So here's the deal. The, let me show you a map so you get a picture here. The first place in Europe where the gospel takes hold is Philippi. It's the first place. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Paul planted a church. In, he started a church in Philippi. Now, he's only in Philippi because Paul had plans to go elsewhere. And he was forbidden from going elsewhere. And instead of going elsewhere... He had a vision to go here, and on his way here, he stopped and filled by sort of church. This is, this is what it means, adaptability. So we begin here. We need a life that's adaptable. And it, we need a life that's adaptable in three ways, adaptable to closed doors, visions, and setbacks. Let me just unpack those with you. We need a life that's adaptable to closed doors. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, we discover that Paul has ambition, that he's driven, he's a visionary, he's type A. He wants to go places, he wants to do things. So, this is what I read. Um, they, Paul and his companions, passed through the Galatian region. Why? Because they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after coming to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not permit them to go there either. <laughs> so here's Paul forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to go into Bithynia. In other words, Paul is, like Paul's not passive. 
I hear this sometimes. You know why the world isn't, isn't uh, the way the world ought to be? Because everybody's change of verse. Paul isn't change of verse. Paul's ambitious. Paul, like, I want to do things. I want to make a difference in the world. I want to make a difference in Asia. And I want to make a difference in Asia. And then God says what? No, I'm not going to let you go there. Oh, okay. Then I want to make a difference in Bithynia. God says, no, no, I won't let you go there either. Well, then I want to go to the Gentiles, Acts 22. No, you're not going to the Gentiles either. That'd be very easy if you're Paul to be like this. Everything I want to, everything I want to do, God's a killjoy. I want to go to Asia. No. I want, I want to go to Bithynia. No. I want to go to the Gentiles. No. Forget it, God. I'm going, to do my, I'm going to do my own thing. That's not Paul. Paul, when there's a closed door, is adaptable. Huge, important principle. The problem isn't that Paul and his team are change-averse. The problem is that things are unfolding differently than they'd ever anticipated, and yet the good news is they adapt. So let's just ask the question, are you able to let go of things when life takes a turn and you don't find yourself where you want to be? That's a huge, important question. Because, of course, the reality is this will happen in all of our lives. Uh, you thought you'd have this job. You didn't get it. Or you had this job and you lost it. There's an unanticipated medical report, and now it's cancer. Uh, there's a parent who suddenly has a stroke. Uh, you wanted to get into this master's program. It didn't happen. You wanted to go to med school. You didn't pass the exam. There are lots of ways for God to redirect your life. You thought you were going to get married. You were engaged. You were close, and then it imploded. This happens all the time in all of our lives. Disappointment. And, we, and here in this setting, What? Closed doors. I wanted it, and God said, no. Big deal, right? It's a, it's a huge deal. Because if you're too goal-oriented, and if, if your identity is tied up in your plans and your dreams, and then your dreams implode, then one of two things happen. Either you say, you know what, I'm a failure. Because I had ideas, and then they didn't work. Or you say, no, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. Like you're heading down this path toward marriage, and then you've got this increasing sense, oh no, this isn't the right relationship. You're not in the right relationship. It's not the right relationship. The day is coming, and you say, nope, I'm going to go anyway. Or you're going to run a marathon, and then you, you injure your Achilles. And, and you say, no, I had a goal. I, you know, I prayed about it. I got to do it. And then you don't have an Achilles anymore <laughs> because, you know, you overdid it. God closed the door, and you said, no, I'm going anyway. This is a thing in our culture. And when that happens, your life with God gets derailed. So, we need to learn here that when God closes a door, the right answer is, if that's your will, God, then it's a closed door. Second, Paul's adaptable to visions. Because on the flip side of the coin, God has said no to Bithynia, no to Asia, uh, uh, excuse me, no to Asia, no to the Jews, and then, uh, Acts 16, 9, and 10, Paul has a vision. And there's a guy in Macedonia, and he says, hey, come help. It's a dream. He has a dream. And he wakes up and tells his team, hey, had a dream. We're going to Macedonia. That sounds like bad leadership to me, right? Like, really? A dream? Um, how is that not just, to quote Scrooge, a piece of bad beef or something like that? Like, how do we know this is God? But here's the reality. There are times in our lives when God, there's an opportunity 
that's kind of on the horizon, and it's not fully formed, and you're not even sure what it is, but, but you, can, you can know that God is pulling you in a direction, and you need to go when that happens. I mean, the entire course of my life changed because a phone call came uh, in April of 1995, and this guy says, hey, this is Dave from Bethany Community Church. We think God wants you to apply to be the senior pastor at Bethany. Wasn't on my radar at all. And so I go, oh, whatever. I'll, you know, I'll just fill out the application. What's the worst thing that could happen? Boom. A, a whole new life, right? And so the point would be sometimes doors close, sometimes there's visions, and sometimes, third category, there are setbacks. And a setback is this. Uh, it's not a closed door, but it's like, oh, uh, life took a turn, and now I'm in a different situation than I thought it would be. Paul is writing this letter from Rome, and the reason he's in Rome is because he's in prison. And at the time, it was the policy of the Roman Empire not to provide food for prisoners. So unless prisoners had a social network, they'd starve to death. And, and Paul is writing this particular letter to the Philippians because he was arrested in Jerusalem, bounced around in both the Judaistic and Roman legal system until he finally ends up in Rome awaiting trial. And it was the Philippians who took an offering and brought it to him so that he could buy food. And this letter is a thank you letter to the Philippians, written from prison in Rome. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says this uh, in... in uh, he says this when I find chapter one, and it is here somewhere. Uh, for it is only right for me, says Paul to the Philippians, to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. In other words, Paul says, in prison, I'm a partaker of grace. And then if you skip down to uh, verse 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know that uh, uh, my, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Yes, I'm in prison, but because I'm in prison, others are emboldened to speak the name of Christ. In other words, my example of being willing to go to the mat for Christ has resulted in greater boldness. Other people are speaking. The gospel is spreading out now, not just throughout the Roman Empire, but throughout Rome. Rome is coming to Jesus. I'm here. I'm in prison. It was a, it was a setback. And yet, what does Paul say? In this, I rejoice. Wow. So, so uh, adaptable. Closed doors? Yeah. Adaptable. Vision? Absolutely. I went to Macedonia. On the way, I stopped at Philippi, planted a church. Now, I'm arrested in prison. Don't know if I'm going to live or die. About to be beheaded, as we'll see next week, potentially anyway. And Paul's response, uh, in this I rejoice. This is remarkable. So here's the deal. Let's fly above it now. S sometimes the Holy Spirit's saying no. Sometimes there's a, the Holy Spirit's saying go. And then you've got to discern what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in any given moment. Go or stay. And how do you do that? Well, you need wisdom because it isn't written in the Bible explicitly whether to stay in Seattle or move to San Diego. It's, and it's not written explicitly, is this the person you're meant to marry? And it's not written explicitly, should you change majors? And it's not written explicitly uh, how you deal with cancer or infidelity or betrayal or unemployment. It's not explicit, but, but wisdom is available, you see. And so you need wisdom. Well, where do you get wisdom, Richard? I'm glad you asked. Proverbs 9.10, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You guys have heard of FOMO, right? F-O-M-O. -O. 
Well, listen to this. F-O-T-L is greater than F-O-M-O. Does that make sense? Fotal is better than FOMO. It's very important. It so should be a bumper sticker. It would cause conversation. So Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this, and this is wisdom. Paul says, I see myself, like I self-identify as what? Like this kind of moral free agent who's making a difference in the world? No. This Paul, Paul, a bond servant of Christ. That's how he self-identifies when he writes the letter. I'm a servant of Christ. In other words, here's Paul, my will is not my own. I am serving the will of another. And I'm serving the will of Christ who himself, when he was here, said, my will, my will, I, Jesus, it's not my will, it's the will of the Father. So I'm only following the example of the master Jesus who himself was subject to God in me now subjecting myself to the will of Christ. And when Jesus says to me, don't go to Asia, I won't go. I want to go to Asia, I won't go. I want to be married, I'll stay single. I want to be a doctor, I didn't get in, it's a closed door, I won't go. How do, you, like, how do you know when to apply again? How do you know when to speak, when to be silent, when to forgive, when to confront? How do you know? Christ knows. And you need intimacy with Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, ethics is not a list of, of prescribed behaviors. Ethics is intimacy with Christ so that you know in any given moment when to speak, when to be silent, because no one else can tell you other than Christ. So if I'm going to be adaptable... I, 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 I need to respond to closed doors, visions, and setbacks. Hugely important. Second, I need a life that's rooted in the end of the story. In other words, I'm living today based on a confidence of where history is headed. Look at verse 6. Paul writing now about the Philippians, he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm confident that Christ will... Finish what Christ began. Now let's just um, uh, look at the language here for a moment because the language is important. It says here, uh, he who began a good work. Let's just look at that phrase for a moment. Uh, The good work, of course, is your relationship with Jesus. That's the good work. And this, what does the text say? The text says this. It says, oh, who began the good work? Like who began your relationship with God? And the answer is, God began the work. Does this make sense? Now, uh, some of you are theological in here, and you've heard of John Calvin. And this is John Calvin. Like, this is what Calvin would say. He would say, God began the work. You didn't begin the work. No, none of us wake up and go, I'm going to find God. Now, there's something in us that actually, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, there's something in us that runs from God. God's chasing us. We're not chasing God. We think we're chasing God sometimes, Right? Like, we think we're going after God, but retrospectively, like, as the, the older I get, the more I'm like this. You know what? I ran, and I thought I was running from God, and when I got to the desert, God was there already. And, and, and I failed, and God drew me back. And I was rebellious, and God forgave me. And I said, I'm done with God, and God made me so miserable, I had to return to God. So when people say to me, you know, like, how do you stay in the race? I go, who, who stayed in the I didn't stay in the race. Like I tried to fall off the cart and God caught me 10,000 times, right? And, and, and so we like to think maybe that, you know, we play this hugely significant role. No. Like our confidence is in reality that God is more faithful than we are. <laughs> and, and, and so God then says that if God began the work, God will perfect the work that God be- began. 
That's the promise here in, the, in this text. So the reality is you and I have everything we need to live lives overflowing with wisdom and hope and joy and mercy and generosity. And we have all this because who lives in us? Christ lives in us. And Christ is the only resource I need to live the Christian life. Because Christ is the only one who actually can live the Christian life. You can't live the Christian life. God never said you could. <laughs> Christ can live it. And God always said that he would. And now he lives in you. Learn to appropriate the immense resources and sufficiency of the indwelling Jesus, that's all you need. And not only that, but God goes on to go to great lengths to say, through the inspiration of Paul, God says, look, no circumstance that comes into your life can ever derail you from God's purpose. Because what is God's purpose? God's purpose is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ so that, so that you would look at the end of your life more and more and more like Jesus, that you would represent the character of Christ uniquely, you looking like Jesus, like still looking like you, but a unique expression of Christ's life. Does this make sense? That's where God is moving you. What can happen to you? What could possibly happen that would derail that? And here's the answer, Romans 8, 28, nothing. God causes all things to work together toward that goal. As long as you continue to turn back to Christ, Christ uses every circumstance to transform you. Every, like, what do you mean every, yeah, getting into the program, not getting in. Rededicating your life to Christ, running away from Christ. Your sins, your righteousness, your failures, your success, God uses all of it. So we don't have to worry anymore, have I done enough, prayed enough, worked enough, because here's the answer, no, you didn't. But God has kept you incredibly. And that's just you. We go on here in this text, and, and, and this text is a window into the fact that God is not only making you new, Revelation 21.5 says what? Behold, I'm making what? All things new. God's changing the whole cosmos. So we know the end of the story. And the end of the story is a world of justice and healing and righteousness and reconciliation and peace, a banquet table, all the nations there. It's a good ending to a good story. And here's the deal. If I know the end of the story, I'm invited now to live as a person of confidence because I know the end. Last night I went to um, see the movie Darkest Hour, Winston Churchill story, Right? Kind of fun to go to history movies because you know how the story's going to end. True? So, I mean, poor Churchill in the movie, he doesn't know how it's going to end. So he's like, what do I do with these troops that are stuck at Dun Dunkirk? And I'm sitting there, whatever, sipping my coffee like my heart is not racing because I know everybody makes it out of Dunkirk alive. I know the end of the story, so I'm not upset. This is Paul in Philippians. I'm convinced that we don't live as if we're in a movie. We live like sports fans. We live like it's football season and we don't know if we're gonna make the playoffs. Do you understand what I mean by that? Of course you understand what I mean by that. <laughs> like you're like, oh, are we good enough? Are we not good enough? Will we win? Will we not win? Oh, we might make, oh, oh, look. Oh, all we need is a field goal. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> And we thought it would, and then it wouldn't. And we're kind of, oh, oh, who's president? Oh, what's the unemployment rate? Oh, North Korea. Oh, Iran. Oh, liberal Seattle. 
Oh, homelessness. Oh, traffic. Oh, housing prices. Listen, you know the end of the story. What are you worried about? God is causing all things to make you more like Jesus. This is like the fundamental message of Philippians. You want to live as a person of hope? Live today in light of the end of the story. And if the end of the story is peace, put your weapons down today. (laughs) And if the end of the story uh, is a world where there's enough for all, then start sharing your stuff. And if the end of the story is a world where creation is preaching God's character, care for the earth. And if the end of the story is a world where God relentlessly keeps his promises and says, everything that I promise has now come true, then you too begin keeping your promises. Your covenant promise of marriage, your, your promise in, in, in relationships, become a person who's living today the end of the story. That's a calling. And we can live as if the end of the story is true because, hello, it is true. One family decided to live into this uh, by, they said, they said to one another, we don't think in the end of the story we'll all be sitting around the banquet table looking at our phones in Isaiah 25. <laughs> we don't think that we're going to be, you know, eating dinner with our text, texting. So this one family, when, when they said, when the sun goes down, we're tech-free from now on. Like, until sunup. That's radical. And so the first few nights, they were sitting around with nothing to do. <laughs> what do we do now? Just looking at each other. So you know what they did? They decided, well, you know, we're living by candlelight and, and uh, our technology's off. Let's build a harp. Let's spend our evenings building a harp. Who does that? <laughs> These people did that, right? This family. And then they took harp lessons. And then they began playing the harp in the evening and singing songs and writing songs. Now, like, you want to know why I share this story with you? Because th- that, this story is so far out of your world as to seem ridiculous, right? And precisely because it's ridiculous, in my opinion, it shows us how embedded we are in our culture. Does that make sense? Well, of course we don't turn our phones off when the sun goes down. Of course we don't turn the lights off and live by candlelight. Of course we stay up forever. Of course we get up early. Of course, because we stay up forever and get up early, we have to hypercaffeinate. Of course! That's our world. That's this world. It's not God's world. We can live as if the end of the story is true. And finally, we need a a life that cultivates right investments. This is Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, so I'm praying for you, Philippians. I'm praying that uh, your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that you might approve things that are excellent, be sincere and blameless, and be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul already knows that the Philippians have this grand capacity for love. They love him. Uh, They've taken this hefty offering for him, and they had it sent to him in Rome from Philippi by way of a man who did so at great risk to his own safety. So for the Philippians, love, capacity to bless others, already strong components in their faith toolkit. (laughs) But Paul indicates that in order for their faith to be sustainable, they need two more qualities. 
They need love that grows in real knowledge and love that grows in discernment. So it's, love is great. Generosity is great. But I need love and generosity that are bound and informed by knowledge and discernment. And I would say if there were ever two qualities derailing Western Christianity, it's these two. Real discernment and real knowledge. Um, look at Bethany. I think we're doing well in generosity. We have a reputation for serving the city well. We have partnerships with schools. We have community meals. We have a shelter. We have a Bible study for recovering addicts. We have a refugee resettlement relationship with World Relief. We have global partnerships to make Christ's reign more visible in Rwanda, in Costa Rica, uh, in, in, in Nicaragua. But discernment? Now, when you look around at, at Western Christianity, this is what I'm going to say to you. Discernment and real knowledge are hard to find. Uh, how do I know? Well, they, here's the presenting problems. We're fragmented into kind of tribal political identities and tribal theological identities in our culture. What, what uh, media now calls identity politics. In other words, like my views are so wrapped up in my identity that if you don't think just like me, I got to change you or cut off the relationship. It's very unhealthy. And the right has done this and the left has done this just as, just as effectively. And one party and wing of the church comes down on financial sin and the other party comes down on sexual sin and, and, and both rush to judgment and both probably see the sins of the other with greater clarity than they see their own sins and both are missing the mark. So I'll make a couple of commitments to you. My first commitment is this. I don't want to be an old fool. I don't want to be, I, I'm already old, but I don't want to be an old fool. So Philippians 4, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's pure, whatever's right, let your mind dwell on these things. That's a personal goal this year. Let's be so saturated with the story of hope that God is writing in the world that I begin to embody that hope in greater measure. I don't want to be an old fool. But then there's a commitment I need to make to you as your, as your pastor and leader as well. And it's this. We must, we must never throw away the biblical witness just because it sounds too far right or too far left. Does that make sense? Uh, in other words, we won't be beholden to a party, theologically or politically, or to a constituency. We need to wrestle with issues and seek to shepherd our community so that we are collectively wrestling with issues so that we are always asking, what does it mean to represent the mind of Christ in this particular moment in time? There are all kinds of issues that I want to assure you that the council here at Bethany is wrestling with. We're wrestling with racial issues and, and justice and reconciliation related to race. We're wrestling with gender identity issues. We're wrestling with uh, sexual ethics and the issue of sex outside of marriage. We're wrestling with the idols of materialism and consumerism and, and individualism and nationalism. We're wrestling with, a, with the subject, uh, can work be meaningful and can, can work be for every, every one of us a ministry whereby we're light shining into our city. We're wrestling with what it means to steward creation in a way that's optimal and, and declaring the glory of God in a city that loves creation. We're, we're wrestling with the question of how do we steward our bodies well? And as we wrestle with these kind of questions, I will let you know this, sometimes we will be too far to the left. Sometimes we'll be too far to the right uh, for various parties, 
too far to the left for the right, too far to the right for the left. But being right for the right and left for the left has never been the point. Like, you guys know me, I don't dress for style. I, I, just, I just wear what I like. And sometimes it happens to be in style. And other times people say, what are you doing? And I say, I'm wearing what I like. Similarly, not identical, but similarly, the, the goal theologically isn't to say, what, you know, what's going to make us popular? Or conversely, what's going to make us you know, hated because it's so good to be hated? No, 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 no. Look, we, there's precedent here. Go back to Acts 15. The church, like the, here's the early church, and what's going on? Well, predominantly Jewish because it started in Jerusalem. Gentiles are coming into the church. And in the meeting with Gentiles excluded, the Jews are like this. Can these people even be here? Like, what are these people doing? Who, who invited them into our thing? Did God invite them? I don't think so, said some. <laughs> oh, no. The doors have been busted wide open, said others. Oh, and oh, okay. Well, if they're coming in, then, you know, they can't eat these meats, and they got to obey, you know, all the Old Testament law, and especially they got to be circumcised. Oh, no, they don't. They're free from all that. The law was fulfilled in Christ. Do you know what? People say to me, hey, I wish we could be like the church in Acts. Let me describe the church in Acts, Acts 15, verse 2. There was great dissension in the church. That's Acts 15. You want to be the church in Acts? That's the church in Acts. Great dissension over same-sex stuff. Great dissension. I mean, every generation has the issue. Do you understand me? Great dissension. It's okay. Nothing new. So, yeah, we wrestle with it. And they did for a whole chapter, testimony, prayer, butting heads, Acts 15, 22. In the end, this is what they say. It seemed good to us to let the Gentiles in. Man, really? Couldn't you use stronger language? God has spoken. No. This is where we are. And this is what we're doing. This is the gospel, you guys. And when we stand up here and say, it seemed good to us, my plea to you is this. Understand that though we will never agree on every minutia, what binds us together is not those minutia. What binds us together is this. We love Jesus. And I need your different view on minutia. And you need mine. It seemed good to us to preserve the unity of the church. How do we continue to grow in discernment so that we're not old fools? Well, uh, this loops us back to kind of this rule of life stuff. Do you remember it? In the fall. I want to encourage, you know, when you came in, there was a little index card in your bulletin. Half of you have already lost it. They're on the floor. They're, under your, <laughs> they're all over the place. That little index card is intended to remind you uh, to make commitments to the practices of faith that allow the seed of Christ to grow in you. And I'm just going to encourage you to, to make those kind of commitments in the days ahead. Uh, you, if you text LIFE to 64600, <laughs> then what you'll get is uh, access to this thing, which is also in the foyer, where you can kind of fill out a rule of life and say, you know what my intent is in 2018? I'm going to practice solitude this way. And I'm going to fast from this this often. 
And then this is my exhortation to us. When you do, whatever you do with this, don't just forget about it, but find a person. If it's your spouse, great. If it's your small group, great. If it's a group of men that you ski with, great. And when you're together, this is what, we're going to be, be a little bit Wesleyan in 2018 and go, you, this is the question you ask. You say, hey, how's it going with your soul? And that's code for, what are you doing with this? Right? Like, like and then you give an answer. Oh, you know, I'm nailing solitude because I'm an introvert. But hospitality, <laughs> hospitality, you know, bring it on. I need a little help there. I mean, we help each other grow so the seed of Christ can grow so that none, so that we, Bethany collectively will not be an old fool but that we'll be 200 years old still in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, so that Christ could be seen in our city. That's the adventure that awaits us in 2018. Amen? Uh, in preparation for communion, I'm going to ask you to stand and read with me a prayer from Sir Francis Drake, who we opened with with a prayer. Let's read together. Disturb us, Lord, when we're too pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we dreamed too little. When we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas, where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of the land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push back the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. This we ask, in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. Father, we do ask this prayer. I want to just pray now as the shepherd of this community, pray for every saint in here that you would disturb us in a good way, that we might enter into the adventure of the life for which we're created more fully and collectively, Father, disturb us in a good way. Uh, that the light of Christ would shine with greater clarity into our city, our nation, our world. We'll thank you. No matter what happens this year, the resources are here for your light to shine increasingly. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.